The Secret Library Podcast is brought to you by the show's Merry Band Patreon supporters. Even while the show is on hiatus, supporters still get solo episodes and access to custom Q&A audio from behind the scenes of my novel writing process. You can check it all out at patreon.com slash secret library. And an update, if you hadn't heard from last week's episode, the show is going on hiatus for the remainder of 2019 after the July 4th episode. We still have two more amazing episodes to go after this one before then, and we'll be back in 2020 with a new season-based format. It's time for me to take my own advice that I've been giving in this show and set everything aside to make this year the year I finish my book. This is episode 155 of the Secret Library Podcast. My guest this week is the one and only Ruth Reichel, and I could probably spend an entire episode just listing all the amazing things she's done in her career, but I'll just give you the highlights for our purposes today. She was editor-in-chief of Gourmet Magazine from 1999 to 2009. And before that, she was the restaurant critic of both the New York Times from 1993 to 1999 and the Los Angeles Times from 1994 to 1993, where she was also named food editor. Ruth Reichel began writing about food in 1972 when she published Mmm, a Fischieri, and since then she has authored numerous critically acclaimed best-selling memoirs, including Tender at the Bone, Garlic and Sapphires, and most recently Save Me the Plums. Her books have been translated into 18 languages. She has received six James Beard Awards, and in 2007, she was named Adweek's Editor of the Year. She holds a BA and an MA in the History of Art from the University of Michigan and lives in upstate New York with her husband, Michael Singer, who's a television news producer. Ruth Reichel has been on my wish list for the show for years because I have loved reading her books. She has this unique gift of telling a story and make you feel like you're sitting at a table with her and she's telling it just to you. And that started when I read Tender at the Bone and every book has been the same since, including the wonderful Save Me the Plums. So it was an honor and a treat to be able to talk to her directly about the process of translating her experience at Gourmet into such a personal and revealing memoir about really a dream job and what it was like to take that job when you don't feel entirely ready to take it and then transform it into a life-altering experience. Um, So getting to have her on the show at last was every bit as wonderful as I imagined. I know you will have the same feeling when you listen. Um, She's really, really special. So it's my great honor to give you Ruth Reichel. Hi, Ruth. Thank you so much for coming on. It's my pleasure. I was very eager to talk to you about Save Me the Plums because I've had a number of students and listeners and clients working on books who find, even if they're writing fiction, this happens, that they get to a point where they realize something that touches their real life or experiences they've had or a person that they know, they feel like somebody might recognize themselves in this book and I'm scared about writing about an experience that touched on real people. And obviously, Save Me the Plums is 100% about real things that happened. And I'm wondering how it was, as you were such a a veteran of memoir, to write a story that felt as personal as this one, 
knowing so many people were going to read it. Yeah, this this one, I, I thought, okay, I've written four memoirs. This is going to be a piece of cake. Um, and it was the hardest book I've ever written. And partly it is because, unlike my other memoirs, everybody in this book is still alive. So I knew that um, people were going to be scrutinizing it uh, for accuracy. And that was frightening. And I also, I mean, I didn't want to hurt anyone's feelings. Um, and that's not really possible to do when you're writing a book that involves as many people as this does. Um, so I, I, I struggled with this one and I mean, I struggled with it to a point that I mean, two years ago, my editor said, maybe you should just move on and this just isn't working. Wow. Um, because I was trying so hard to not make any mistakes. And in that process, I ended up being pretty superficial. Uh, and she just kept saying, you've got to go deeper. We want to know more. What are you thinking? What are you feeling? And I tried very much to write the book that I thought people wanted, which was kind of gossipy about Condé Nast and, um, and which was very much about the process of magazine making. And Susan, who is one of the last great editors, I mean, she is really one of these people who frets over every word, mm-hmm. right? And she just kept saying, we want to know more about what you're feeling. We don't care about the gossip. We don't care about um, the process of putting the magazine together. Um, it's really hard to make putting an issue together compelling reading. <laughs> um, and she just kept pushing me, you know, um, even after it, I was done and the magazine was and the book was accepted. Susan called me one day and she said, you know, I've been reading it again and we need to get out of the building. I'm feeling claustrophobic. We need one more story um, that takes us away from the magazine. And so I ended up at the very last minute writing the story about um, the man who knew everyone, Stevie Kaufman. Um, and, and the book was already accepted at that point. And she just said, we're too much inside the building. Um, and one of the things I had not anticipated, but which has been really difficult for me after the fact of publication, is that a lot of people who were not in the book or who felt that they were not in it enough were angry that they felt their contributions had not been adequately uh, recognized in the book. And it's very hard to say to someone, well, yes, you were enormously important to the magazine, but the truth is you're not a colorful character. Mm. And um, it's really hard to write an interesting story about someone who just puts her head down and goes to work. Right. 
And so um, there were three people who were really important to the magazine who felt that um, they, they'd been belittled because they, they weren't a big part of the book. And, you know, what you end up doing is writing about the most colorful characters you have. Of course. That's that's a really interesting thing that I wouldn't have thought of, that in writing a book about real people, the fear is always, oh, God, I don't want to reveal too much about this person or I don't want to, you know, expose them. But the thought of not exposing someone enough is a completely different question. Right. And I got, you know, from a very close friend, I mean, someone and someone who was so important to the magazine and someone I kept throwing more money at to try to keep her from leaving. And, you know, she called me in a rage and said, you know, um, I, where am I? Hmm. And I, you know, I, I just, I felt terrible. I mean, she actually called me when I was about, right at the beginning of the tour, she had just read the book and I was about to go on stage and she called me and I picked up the phone thinking she was going to tell me how much she loved the book. And she just unloaded on me. Oh no. And, um, I went on stage shaking, but cause it was not something I'd anticipated. Um, so that's a hidden pitfall. And then, you know, there are a, a couple of people who, um, are nice people, but, um, who, you know, I worried about, you know, I, I, I don't paint, uh, very kind portraits of them. I have not heard from any of those people. Interesting. So how was it in the process of writing it? Because this is sort of the place, I, I imagine that you were imagining this point in time a lot as you were writing the book. And at what point did you know that this was going to be a book? Um, you know, I'm not sure I ever did because... You know, I worked so long on it. Um, and, you know, at the point that Susan said to me, you know, maybe you should just move on and just, you know, move on to your next novel and put this aside. And then I had to really have like a come to Jesus moment with myself where I thought, you know, what what is the point of writing this book? I mean, forget the fact that I've you know got a contract for it and that um, I know people want the book, but what what is my reason for wanting to write this book? And at that point, when I got that um, there were four main things that I wanted this book to do, and when I knew that and started driving towards that, I knew I had a book. And, you know, I mean, I knew that in the process of writing the book, I had sort of gotten beyond my, uh, both my depression and my anger about the closing of the magazine. And at that point, I realized that the opportunity that they had given me, those 10 years at Gourmet were extraordinary that they had, Connie Nast had literally signed Newhouse had literally handed me a magazine and said, make it great. Um, do whatever you need to do and we'll support you. And they did that. And that 
those days were gone that I don't think anybody's ever going to have that opportunity again. And that I needed to celebrate that. And I really needed to celebrate the extraordinary institution that was Condé Nast. And that I wanted also to talk about what I thought happened at that institution, which was, it was a wonderfully strange organization. (laughs) Um, And that as it became more corporatized and the bean counters came in, it lost everything. So I really wanted to celebrate odd institutions, which are run by quirky people. And I wanted to write about those three um, really interesting men at the top of the of Condé Nast when I got there. And, you know, what a, a wonderful love-hate relationship they had with each other and why that worked. And I also wanted very much to write about the this moment in American food where it it suddenly went from being the province of a very select group of rich people to popular culture that belonged to everyone. And that the magazine was very much about celebrating that moment and taking the magazine into that new place. I wanted to write about that. And then I also wanted to write about what it was like to be a woman with no understanding of how to be a boss, no management training at all, and a working mother and how I learned both to be a boss and to manage people and also how to try and balance my life as a mother and a a worker. And so at the point that I knew that those were, that that was what I wanted the book to be about, I knew I would have the book. I, I wondered because some of the moments that you, you expand upon in Save Me the Plums were present in smaller doses in my kitchen year. So I had this vision of these, these books almost sort of simmering on the stove in your consciousness after Gourmet closed. And I wondered, did, were they cooking at the same time and, and they happened differently or, or how did that process happen? Well, you know, I, the first thing I did was write my novel Delicious, which was, you know, I had always said if I didn't have a day job, I would write a novel. So suddenly it was like, okay, I'm going to write a novel. Um, but I knew, I mean, I had already sold the idea of the gourmet memoir. I knew I was going to do that. So it was sort of lurking back there. But my kitchen year was just a gift. It was completely organic. It, unlike either Delicious or my, or Save Me the Plums, my kitchen year was easy. It just wrote itself. Mm. I mean, it was really, you know, um, Bill Sertle, our travel editor, just sort of said to me, you know, why don't you write a cookbook? And bingo, it was there. I mean, the tweets were there. The whole notion of, yes, I had basically been unable to write for the first year and I'd gone into the kitchen and just cooked. And that was um, the only 
completely easy book I've ever written. And it was almost unedited. I mean, I pretty much turned it in and except for the fact that I hadn't wanted to have photographs in it. I just wanted it to be a reading book. And in the end, Susan insisted that we had to photograph it. Um, other than that, it was pretty much, here's the book and we'll just print it to print. How uh, fascinating that the easiest and the hardest were right next to each other. They were right next to each other. But, um, you know, I, I think that um, my kitchen year is, is just, um, I, it was just me unloading on the page, whereas um, Save Me the Plums was something where I really felt like I had to have a deeper message. I mean, the message of my kitchen here is pretty simple. The message is pay attention to little things and that will save your life. Right. And what I was trying to say in Save Me the Plums was really um, much broader. And I was really trying to write a book that um, was useful to a much broader group of people. I mean, I really thought of my kitchen year as a very little book. Um, you know, with the photographs, it became bigger than I had initially intended, but I, I thought of it as, um, you know, just, just a, a small book. And this one felt like, um, I really had something, uh, big to say to, a wider group of people to people who were not necessarily food people, um, who might not even be interested in food. I can see that. I think that it feels a little bit like almost like a time travel machine because I felt like I got to travel back to with you on your shoulder walking into this and to feel what you were feeling when you first walked in the door and thought, Oh, is this a good idea? Or this, is this the best idea ever? And, and moving through that process there, that was one of the things I loved most about it was that not only was it about the sort of events that unfolded, but also about the feelings that went along with them and, and the impact it had on your life and everyone else's life. Yeah. I mean, the fact that I, I really, I was so scared and I was so unprepared um, to, to go into that position. And it felt really important for me to make people understand um, how really incompetent I felt to do <sighs> that job. Um, and, and, and the fact that I really was, and that, you know, for me, the big lesson there was, um, don't pretend that you know what you don't know. Um, you know, it's, it's okay. You can, you can go into that position. You can be in charge and you can say to the people who are working with you, look, I'm out of my depth here, help me. And that they will do it. And, and that seems to me a, a really important thing and a thing that women are much more able to do than men. Right. You know, I mean, I, I literally said to the staff, you know, help me out here. 
And they did. I mean, and they were happy to. And, um, you know, it was empowering for all those people who, um, you know, I mean, many of those people um, found it very difficult afterwards to go back to jobs where less was expected of them. You know, I mean, people people like being asked to um, use everything that they've got, you know. Um, and, you know, for instance, Larry, who was my managing editor, is, I mean, I never wrote a memo that I didn't ask Larry to read before I sent it out. And he would often say, you know, you're being too harsh here or, you know, maybe you could put it a little differently. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it turns out that, you know, he could manage with, you know, his left hand. And he also wanted to write and to um, to edit. And I just said, you know, anything you want to do, um, do it. I mean, you don't have to fit into the mold of I'm a managing editor and I'm just going to count the beans here. And afterwards, you know, everybody at Condé Nast wanted Larry because he's so competent and he had this huge reputation within the company, but he wasn't willing to go back to just being a managing editor. And he ultimately left and, you know, became a writer and editor. That's wonderful. This was something that I, I really loved too, was seeing people, seeing you find your way in the process and, and getting to watch that and also seeing everyone else figure out a way of working that fit for them. Because as you said, it is so unusual to have that much space and that much permission in order to do that. Yes. And, and also, I mean, frankly, that much money. Right. So that if you hired someone who turned out to be not quite right for the job, you could find out what they were good at and then hire someone else to do the job you thought they had originally been meant to do. Um, and, and, you know, that's a luxury that I just don't think exists anymore. Yeah, there's such pressure to get everything right. And it sort of goes back to something you said at the beginning of our conversation, how much pressure you felt to get everything right in the book. And I'm, I'm wondering if you can say more about that, because I think there's there's the, you know, did this happen on this day or did this happen that week kind of right. But there's also the emotional tone, which I I mean, of course, I can't go back in time and feel what it was like to be there. But I felt like I could really feel what it was like to be in those offices. Yeah, well, as as I said in, in the introduction to Tender at the Bone, um, this all of this may not be factual, but it's all true. Right. And the truth has always been more important to me than getting every fact correct. And that was particularly hard in this book um, because I knew that there would be people who were, well, wait a minute, that didn't exactly happen um, this way. And... Um, <laughs> That's one reason why this book was so hard, because I really couldn't, I, I, I really couldn't skip things or, you know, take two events and make them one, which I have done often in my other books. Because, um, you know, we're not dealing with 50 years ago now, we're dealing with just a few years ago. Um, 
you know, I chose the moments that I thought would have the most impact. Um, and I mean, I can't tell you how much was left on the cutting room floor. I can only imagine. Um, you know, I mean, I really wanted to write about putting together certain, certain issues. I mean, special issues. Well, it just doesn't make great writing. I mean, we had, we had a wonder, we did a literary supplement that was the high point of the magazine. And I tried really hard to write about putting that together. And it just, it just didn't work. I mean, I would have liked to have written about the Gourmet Institute, but again, it just, it just, it didn't make great reading. And, you know, I felt like every chapter had to have an emotional impact. So how did you continue? How did you keep going? Or what was your process in terms of, of writing the chapters when you had, I'm sort of picturing all of these people that you knew, either sitting on your shoulder or hovering in the background in your mind, knowing that they were going to read it? Uh, how did you kind of give yourself some space in order to write anyway? Well, I mean, what I always do is say, you can write it, you don't have to use it in the end, but you can write it. And so I never stop myself from writing something, no matter how far out on a limb I'm going. And, you know, and then you go through it in the end and say, okay, am I, am I, am I going to work with this? Um, okay. I, I've written something where I've played fast and loose with the facts. How am I going to make this completely factual or do I have to leave it out completely? So, I mean, I start by giving my per myself permission to write anything hmm. and then I backtrack. And in this book, I backtracked a lot, you know, I mean, I just, um, you know, there, there were, um, whole scenes where I thought, no, I really, I can't, I can't use this. Um, it's, uh, there are too many people who are going to say no. So how long did it take you to get through kind of a first draft that you wrote for yourself versus its oh, sons? Well, I mean, there was, there was one whole first draft that I spent about nine months on, sent it to my agent and she called me and said, no. Oh, wow. Um, you are, and it was one that was written from a modern perspective. It, it was written from right now, but looking back. And she said, no, that this, this, um, this isn't working. One, you're still too angry. Um, the tone is snide and that's not going to work. And I don't know that this whole you know, assessing now something from the past works. I, I, she said, you know, your books are always so immediate and I think you've got to recast it. So that was, that was take one. And that never even made it to my editor. Wow. And just my agent saying no. And, you know, and that was the first time I reassessed, okay, where am I going? And then the, at the moment where my editor said, you know, maybe you should move on. Um, this was a couple of years down the road and a couple more drafts later. 
And I was really upset. And um, my husband you know, said to me, you know, your problem is you always want everything to be nice. And I think you should type out that thing that Larry said to you. I mean, Larry once said to me, you're not as nice as you think you are, which I put in the book. Right. Um, and Michael said to me, just, you know, type that out, put it on your desk and keep looking at it. And every time you think that you want to be too nice, remember that. Which That's was great. Really, which was really helpful. Um, and, um, you know, in the end, I don't think that the book, um, I think, is probably still a little too nice for, for Michael's uh, taste. But um, it, it, was, it was really helpful in writing the next, the what turned out to be the final draft when I you know, finally got it. That's amazing. I think, I think that's true. I think that it, what ultimately came from the book, it, it feels fair. I think it doesn't feel angry. It doesn't feel, but it also doesn't feel sugarcoated at all. Um, it doesn't yeah. feel like you're avoiding things. So perhaps that's what the balance created. Yeah. And it, it, I mean, I, I think it is fair in that by the time I, I wrote the final draft, I was way, I wasn't angry anymore. I, I was really, I mean, I, I was really feeling grateful to Sign Newhouse. And, um, you know, and I was also, I mean, there, there was a point. I wanted to call the book The Last Fun Job. Because there was a point when Zan, um, who uh, was the executive food editor, turned to Richard, the art, the creative director, in a meeting. And our meetings were really fun. I mean, Larry ran these meetings and and everybody laughed and and they were great. And unlike most meetings, we all looked forward to our weekly meeting. And... At one point, Zan turned to Richard and said, can you believe that they pay us to have this much fun? Mm. And, you know, I I really, I wanted to celebrate that. That that job was so much fun. And I think not just for me, and I'm sure it wasn't fun for everyone, but, I mean, I think it really means something that the magazine has been closed for 10 years. And we still are in constant contact with each other. That's wonderful. And, um, you know, I I think for many of us, it was a kind of freedom that we'd never had before and will probably never have again. I think that there was there was something important about that also, that this process of writing the book, it, it feels like mourning a death, you know, when you have that kind of connection and that many people connected around a magazine, it really felt like a death when the magazine closed in the way that it was written. And I've been in positions with jobs where they've suddenly changed like that. And it does feel like a death. And I'm wondering how did the process of writing the book, it sounds like it changed your, your relationship to that loss. It did. I one of the things that I felt, I mean, as I was sort of going through how much 
Conde Nast had changed and how much my job had changed, I kind of came to the realization that although I think it was terrible that they shut the magazine and I wish they had just fired me and kept the magazine on, I was lucky that I did not have to preside over the endless diminishing of the magazine. Mm. Um, And, you know, we went out on a high point uh, before, you know, everything changed and the advertisers became completely paramount and uh, where we were still able to, I mean, we worked at a magazine where my boss could actually say to me about a cover about the the celebrity chef, the the band, the rock band that we did, where he could actually say to me, this is going to be a newsstand disaster, but you should do it anyway because it's important. No one would ever say that today. And I got to leave the magazine when people were still saying, you know, do the important thing. And that's, you know, for me, a stroke of luck. Um, and I think for all of us on the staff, I mean, we, we didn't have to watch the magazine dwindle into um, a shadow of its former self. That's true. I think there were a lot of moments like that. Like I'm thinking about the the fish on the cover and the and the risks and the opportunity to take a risk and find out what happens rather than preemptively not doing it. Yeah, and they just I mean and and you know David Foster Wallace and Yes. Um I mean there were a lot of moments like that where uh, they basically said just do it. And um, you know, what an amazing thing. So, I mean, that's what happened to me in the course of writing the book. I came to realize how extraordinary that moment had been. And, you know, and just even the way that they let me run the magazine. I mean, you know, I mean, Connie Nass was out, you know, a corporation with flowcharts. And, you know, when I first saw a flowchart, I didn't, I had no idea what, what I was looking at. <laughs> so-and-so reports to so-and-so. And so, I mean, I, and the idea that they let me run this magazine is essentially kind of a commune where everybody had input. And, um, you know, I mean, when you think about what you know about the way Vogue was run and the way Gourmet was run and, you know, that you would have two such completely different ways of running an organization within the same umbrella organization. That's amazing too. I think it's, I think it's a wonderful testament to being willing to do things differently and that there isn't a one size fits all experience. I mean, even you talking about the many books you've written, there hasn't been a one size fits all experience for writing the books, let alone anything else that we do that's creative. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, I, I had not even heard of the notion of imposter syndrome until I went on this book tour and people keep saying to me, you know, that I'm a victim of imposter syndrome. But I mean, I think that's part of um, the creative process is 
that you never feel like you know exactly what you're doing and you give yourself permission to do it anyway. Definitely. And, and you know, to, to have an organization that understands that is pretty extraordinary. Um, to have an organization that, that is, you know, after all, you know, a money-making corporation, but that um, is willing to take risks and, you know, hire people who think out of the box. Um, so, you know, in the course of writing the book, I really, that that's what I wanted to celebrate. Um, and, um, yeah, it's true that um, I did, you know, writing the book really made me see that time in a new way. I think, you know, one of the other things that was important to me in the whole process of running Gourmet was that it was more important for me to feel like the staff had ownership of the magazine than for me to feel like everything that we published was perfect. So I often ran pieces that I didn't like very much myself. If some editor would come and say, you know, like, you know, really throw down the gauntlet and say, this piece is important to me. I, I really, I, I think you're wrong and you're not liking it. I would run it because I didn't feel like it was my magazine. It was our magazine and it felt important for everybody who worked there to feel like it was their magazine. Uh, you know, so, you, you know, you, you read about like Tina Brown, like you know, tearing up uh, the New Yorker at the last minute because there's stuff that she didn't like in there. I would never have done that. Yeah, it's fascinating how different they all are all of the magazines that we know and how different the culture is and how fascinated people are with the culture that's happening inside the making of it. Yeah, because I think everybody understands that, you know, the magic of magazines is, it is the most collaborative work you can possibly do. You're all interdependent and um, there is nothing more exciting than that process of working together and not quite knowing what the outcome is going to be. I mean, I remember, you know, we would, we would decide, okay, we're going to do an issue on food and television. And, you know, somebody would throw the idea out and we'd all go, oh, great idea. And we'd brainstorm it in the first meeting. And I remember leaving those meetings and thinking, I wonder what this issue is going to be like. And the excitement of watching it grow and change as new people, you know, bring in new ideas and a writer comes up with something. And then, you know, the art department thinks, oh, well, let's do X. And, you know, that process of watching something grow and get better and better, it's so wonderful. And that's what I miss. Boy, do I miss that. Oh, you can tell in the book. And it is so interesting to go from something that is so collaborative to to writing books, which in some cases, at least the writing stage is the most isolated thing you can do at the other end of the spectrum. I know. And it's so much more fun to be in a room full of people, um, for me anyway. Um, yeah, I, I, I really, really miss it. So how do you how do you stay engaged in that way? How do you maintain? Because some people, I mean, someone who feels that way, it's you were already writing books, obviously, before 
gourmet clothes, but how do you, how do you stay connected to that part of yourself when you're writing? How do you keep that part fed? Oh, you know, I, I am a really social person. So, um, I, you know, have a lot of people over for meals and, um, I, um, I still do some writing for magazines. Um, I, I still get to, you know, go into magazine offices. Um, and, you know, for instance, one of the great things about doing my kitchen year, um, although I fought like crazy against the notion of having photographs in it when I finally said, okay, we'll do photographs again. There it was, you know, there I was with Mickle you know, this wonderfully collaborative time. And I was just, you know, he would come up for like three days every few months and we would just work like crazy for three days. And I would think, ah, this is what it was like working with someone. It's so much fun. That's great. Well, I'm, I'm so grateful that we've had this time to talk about the book. It's a really special book. And as you said, it, it goes so far beyond food. It's about, work and collaboration and creativity and and so many things. So it's wonderful to hear your thoughts as you were creating it. Well, thank you so much. I mean, this, this has been, um, unlike any other interview I've done, I'm feeling like maybe I said too much, but, um, it's, it's been really interesting for me. Thank you so much for listening to the secret library podcast. We hope you've enjoyed this week's show. You can keep the conversation going by leaving a comment in the show notes at secretlibrarypodcast.com or visit us on Facebook at facebook.com slash secretlibrarypodcast. You can also connect directly with me on Twitter or Instagram where I'm Caro Donahue. That's at C-A-R-O-D-O-N-A-H-U-E. I look forward to chatting with you there. See you next week. Until then, happy writing.